When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the good people listening. Well, uh, good afternoon, uh, Brother Thomas. Uh, my name is Tony Tedeschi. I am a retired New York City fire captain. Um, I was a captain in special operations. I was the captain of Squad Company 270. I spent a good portion, if not almost all of my career in special operations uh, in the FDNY. Prior to that, I, was, uh, I worked for just a couple of short years in the NYPD. I was in what was called the SNU or Street Narcotics Unit, which was just basically a narcotics unit, but at the precinct level, not like the big time narcotics teams, but precinct level stuff. And I happened to work in uh, portions of the city uh, back in the crazy crack days. So um, it was it was adventurous, to say the least. And prior to that, I mean, they're getting a lot of attention now, rightfully so. Uh, I was a member of New York City EMS, which was prior to it being absorbed by the fire department it was run by health and hospitals so i kind of jumped from one to the next to the next i, I my, my main goal is to be a firefighter it just was very competitive and difficult to get to so getting into ems was, was the easiest and the police was the next easiest and then finally i got to my end goal which was the fire department and uh, in my time in the fire department, also, I was a member of New York Task Force One, which is the federal level uh, urban search and rescue FEMA team. So I got deployed multiple times throughout the country for that. Um, so I got to see uh, some interesting things. Uh, I had a, a fantastic, blessed, lucky career. And, uh, you know, lucky right now, I still have my health. So all's well. And here I am sitting down in beautiful Maryland talking to you on a podcast. Can't be too bad, right? Exactly. Beautiful. Um, Yeah. So uh, last time I had you on, we obviously discussed the coronavirus apocalypse as well as the the passing of a mutual friend. But we didn't really talk about anything with your career. But um, I wanted to talk about that today um, in your experiences in and around 9-11 and so I'm just going to put the microphone a little closer to the laptop so it picks you up better. I'm going to mm-hmm. lean back and just listen because I don't – I want to hear your story. People don't want to hear my dumbass voice chiming in like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I'm leaning back and listening. And the floor is yours, Tony. All right. Well, um, you know, obviously that's always a question and people seem, oh, you know, I said, can I, were you there? Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously based on my time um, on the job, I was certainly a firefighter at the time. Um, I was at the time I was still a a firefighter, rank firefighter. And I was working in rescue company number one in Manhattan, which is literally right up the block from the World Trade Center. It's on the West 43rd Street between 10th and 11th, and the Trade Center is downtown, right straight down the West Side Highway there. I happened to uh, be off that day. I was supposed to work. My groups were, you know, theoretically scheduled or not theoretically, they were scheduled. 
But in the fire department, what we had what was called mutual partners, and we would switch our shifts back and forth. So we'd end up doing 24-hour tours and so forth. And that was a regular occurrence. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. That was like a constant or a consistent thing. Uh, my 24 partner was Jerry Nevins, you know, great guy. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away. But um, that was my daughter, Tony Nicole's first day of preschool and his kids were the next day. So we kind of just flipped our shifts around and said, okay, you work the first half, meaning he was going to do the first half 24 hours and I was going to come in and do the next half of 20 and do 24 hours. And, uh, you know, obviously it was a beautiful September day and I was getting ready to, you know, bring my daughter to her first day of preschool. I mean, it's a funny little backstory with my, my young daughter, Tony, that I'll get into in a couple of minutes. But, uh, and then you turn on, uh, I get a phone call and a friend of mine says, did you see what just happened? And he goes, turn on the TV. So I turn on the TV and obviously you look just like everyone else. And I'm sure a lot of people got the same phone call. Did you see what just happened? And we saw that, you know, there was a plane crash into the World Trade Center. I knew pretty much immediately that, you know, just looking at the damage, looking at the pictures that were coming out of the building, and they were, you know, the initial reports, it was a Cessna, or it was this, was it, you knew immediately that wasn't the case. And, um, you know, th those towers have been up since the 70s. Planes don't accidentally fly into them. You know, the, the airspace over Manhattan is, is a known thing. Um, can it happen? Yeah, but you know, a Cessna into the play. It wouldn't cause that amount of damage. So I, I kind of had a feeling right away, this is not right. Something's definitely not wrong. Obviously when the second tower got hit, <clears throat> that was, um, that was a no brainer. So collectively, you know, where I lived, I'm just letting you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on a second, uh, a second microphone because it's fucked up in the past and hasn't recorded. So keep going. So, you know, Basically, after the first plane hit, and I, I can't recall because now it's, you know, obviously a bunch of years ago, whether it was before the second plane hit, but we knew something was going on. And collectively, especially in the town that I lived in and out on Long Island, a bunch of guys, you know, we, we were all firefighters. We actually all worked in special operations. Um, we're calling each other saying, hey, we got to start heading in. And then, you know, not too soon after the second plane hit, they were fairly close together. So... Now we all jump in the car, and at that time, all the guys I jumped in the car with were assigned to Rescue Two, which was in Brooklyn. So Rescue One, there's only five rescues in New York City. They're considered the heavy rescue companies, and so one basically in each borough: one in Manhattan, two in Brooklyn, three up in the Bronx, Rescue Four in Queens, and Rescue Five out in Staten Island. So the guys that I was riding into the city with were all members of rescue two. So I jumped in the car with them and I was going to go to rescue two's quarters. At that time, they started locking everything down. Once the, they knew that the, this was definitively a terrorist attack, once that second plane hit, they knew that, you know, basically the shit was on. Then they was restricting travel. They weren't letting people in and out of the city. They were really trying to start to clamp everything down as quickly as possible. So I drove to Rescue Two's quarters with a, a bunch of friends of mine, Tom Donnelly, Joe Jordan, who's now a uh, big uh, staff chief uh, on the job. Um, 
Joey Vacal, we, uh, we all drove into, actually not Joey, Joey was working um, somewhere else. Um, we all drove into Rescue Two's quarters and we started grabbing whatever gear we could um, kind of muster out of the firehouse. My stuff was all in Manhattan and I knew it was going to be very difficult for me to get into Manhattan. So I went right to Rescue Two's quarters with these guys. Um, at that point, Every company in special operations, all five of the rescues, and in addition to the five rescues, there's um, seven squad companies, which is where I finished my career in a squad company. Um, five of the seven squad companies were there. So you have seven squads, five, you know, 12. Out of the 12 special operations companies, 10 of them were assigned to the Trade Center. Um, and it happened... When the first plane hit, which was just around quarter to nine, I think it was uh, 8.46, I believe, um, that's nine o'clock is the change of tours in the New York City Fire Department. So the night tour and the day tour, sometimes guys work from the night into the day, but that's when the change of tours happens, either at nine o'clock or at six o'clock at night. So... In most firehouses throughout the city, and, and likewise in the special operations companies, uh, there was double the amount of men in the firehouse. So when a plane hits the World Trade Center, this is the big one. No one's going home. I'm getting on the rig. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. Everybody jumped on the rig. Yeah. But like in my firehouse, Rescue One, 11 guys rolled out the door instead of the usual six. Okay. So you had... The six that were originally on plus five additional that jumped on the rig. Um, so now, mind you, that pretty much is kind of the case for almost all the units that rolled down there. That's why there was such a great loss of life um, on top of guys coming from home and, and retired guys and active guys like myself. So we went to Rescue Two's quarters. Rescue Two was already in Manhattan. Um and I remember the captain of Rescue 2, who is still to this day one of the legendary uh, captains. You know, he, he has since retired from the FDNY. Um, his name was Phil Ruvalo. We got into quarters and he just said, listen, brothers, this is going to be bad. There's going to be a lot of guys dead. You just realize that. Um, and, you know, we just we got to try to do what we can do. So we get everything we can get together. I don't remember at what point in time. Eventually, the, the second tower hit is the first tower to collapse because yeah. it was hit lower. It was compromised worse. So we get the gear that we can get, but we have no way to get to Manhattan. So a couple of guys walk outside. Now, kind of set it up. I, I don't know if you're familiar with New York City, um, but Rescue Two's quarters at the time, they've since moved, uh, was on Bergen Street in Brooklyn which is right in the middle of Bed-Stuy, which is pretty, you know, at, and especially at that time, you know, how many years ago? We, we're talking 2000, right? 2001, so we're at 2019 years ago. Uh, it was, you know, one of the, the tougher ghettos in New York City. The back of the firehouse on a consistent basis when you work there, and I worked there on details all the time, you'd hear the gunshots because the back of the firehouse was a park. So you'd hear the gunshots all night long. And, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it actually was real. It was, you know, it was a bad neighborhood, and that was just the way that it was. Um, So the guys just went out front, and the city bus was coming down the block with a whole bunch of people on it. They jumped out in front of the city bus, and, uh, I remember there was like this young black girl driving the city bus. You know, she was a city bus driver. And they just said, hey, listen, uh, 
we're going to have to commandeer the bus. Uh, we need a ride into Manhattan. And without blinking an eye, she's like, no problem. She got up, turned around, everyone off the bus. That's she threw awesome. everyone off the bus right there in the middle of the street. That's awesome. Um, and we all piled onto the bus and she said, where do you want to go? And we said, you know where we need to go. She yeah. said, no problem. And off, off we went That's and awesome. drove through the streets of Brooklyn. And, uh, I believe it was, yeah, I believe we went over to Brooklyn bridge and she got us, you know, just as we were coming across the bridge and we just get into the area by downtown and, and start heading towards where the trade center is and we're probably a, a few blocks from the trade center. Wham! The second tower came down. And that's when we basically just, you know, the bus, everything just got enveloped in the dust. We weren't anywhere near the area where the building came down. We were still a few blocks away. And the way those buildings collapsed, you saw they were a, a classic, okay. what was called a pancake collapse. So it only took, you know, and I know they did the studies and we look into it. It only took one floor in each building to collapse. And then because yeah. the building was so closely engineered that boom, 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 it just fell down on top of itself. Thank God. Yeah. Because then it would have been even more catastrophic. Because yeah. that was their plan. They wanted those towers to fall over. They didn't yeah. want them to come straight down. Because yeah. back in 93, when I was in EMS, I was also at that trade center bomb. Okay. When they drove the bomb into the basement of the trade center and tried to blow up it in the they basement. And their tower. idea was that the tower would fall over. They wanted one tower right. to hit so the this other. Second time, this was the second time they yeah. hit the tower. You know, uh, I don't know how many people are aware of that, but it was the second time. Yeah. And, them, you know, I know people don't want to hear it, but both times it was Muslim extremists. Yeah. And you know, the guys that did it the first time are still in jail. They were like radicals from New Jersey. You know, they were from the Middle East, but they were based yeah. out of New Jersey. Yeah. So, um, so you know, the cliche is kind of like the dust settles. We get off the bus. We thank the bus driver, you know, thanks, you know, for what you did. We could never repay her, you know, and off she went. I don't, we never saw her again. Um, I guess she went back to Brooklyn and went back to doing her route, knowing uh, how people were operating. And we started walking towards the trade center. So, of course, you know, being in a typical special operation, which is a bunch of hard charges, you know, I don't want to ever equate it because I know you've had guys like Dale Comstock and like, we're like, the Delta or SEALs of the fire department, but yeah. nowhere near their level. Like, yeah. where, where, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get you. Yeah, no, you're fine. But, uh, you know, if someone said to try to, like, I don't get what special operations is, well, we're, we're kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah, those the, the cream of the crop of the firefighters. Yeah, that's fine. So, yeah. Um, so now, and, and they're all hard charging guys, and like, we're in the midst of two, you know, 110 story buildings falling down. And, and of course, they look at me and they're like, okay, Manhattan guy. Tell us how to get there. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm dealing with some hardcore ghetto firefighters. You know, and we were all friends. I knew all these guys yeah, yeah, for yeah. years. <clears throat> and I had previously worked in the ghetto, too. I went to Manhattan as, as an opportunity. And so now I'm looking around, and I'm like, you know, everything's covered with dust. A lot of the, some of the buildings that were there were gone. And as we got closer, like, I had an idea where we were. And now we get really close to what you is is ground zero and i'm like you're like where are we and i'm like now it's just just giant piles of rubble everywhere and it was you know it was and i say this all the time it was like walking on a movie set there was you know police cars on fire ambulances overturned on fire fire trucks on fire but 
dead, quiet, eerie silence, no radio chatter. We had our radios. We had spare radios, which in New York City, that's very unlike the New York City Fire Department. The fires, the radios constantly going, and you know, sometimes there's too much chatter. And there was just this haze in the air, obviously all the cement dust and the silica and the thousands and billions of sheets of paper that came out of 210-story office buildings, you know, that was just kind of wafting down still. And it was like, so I, I people say, you know, how would you describe it? I, I you know, I don't know, like, it, I, not that I ever went through one, but if I had to describe it like a nuclear winter after like a nuclear, yeah. it was just... Dead silent. You know when you go out after a snowstorm and it's silent, yeah. it's beautiful, and it's peaceful? Well, this wasn't beautiful, and it certainly wasn't peaceful. You know, and, you know, it just, it was like walking through a movie set. So we just keep walking, and I'm like, all right. You know, and of course, I, I'm with, you know, guys that are my peers, and I don't want to, like, be a complete jerk off here and not know where the hell I am. And they're like, you know, where are we? Where are we? And I'm like, I'm Trying to fucking figure this out, man. I have no idea where fucking all the landmarks, they're gone. Everything's either under rubble, completely covered in fucking, you know, inches and inches of dust. I have no fucking idea where we are. You know, just give me a minute. I'll figure it out. So finally we're walking and like I walk up on this pile of fucking debris and I see a broken window, like a big window. And, you know, something about the building kind of like struck me and I stuck my head in the window and I know why it struck me because it looked like the front of the firehouse. And it was, it was 10 engine and 10 truck, which was literally right across the street from the trade center. Literally, you could walk out of the front door of the firehouse, walk across the street and walk right into the doors of the trade center. Okay. So I looked in and I said, this is 10 and 10. And like, you know, in many firehouses, the kitchen is like a big focal point of the firehouse. So almost all firehouses in New York City, if not all, have like a big giant, you know, long table that they custom made and that they, you know, someone in the firehouse at some point in time did it because there's always crafty guys, you know, they're, they're varnished and they have the logos of the company and whatever it may be. And I was able to identify that this was 10 engine and 10 truck. I said, okay, now I know where I am. Now I was able to get, okay, east, west, north, yeah. south. This is where this should be. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know. And so I walked around and then we, you know, I figured out how to get to West Side Highway now. And I got to the West Side Highway and we made our way around. And then we started hearing some crackles on the radio and guys were starting to take over. And, you know, the the big Marriott Hotel that was there was gone. Yeah. Um, there was another uh, building, I forgot how many stories it was, it had like one floor of fire, you know, which would have been a catastrophic monumental fire, you know, on any regular day. And it was just like, yeah, this is just forget it. We, yeah. we you know, we, we got no time to deal with that. Um, and, you know, we basically just kind of figured out where sort of the towers were. And there was this one big giant <clears throat> probably had to be six, seven, eight stories worth of debris um, that was left of one of the towers. And what happened is, uh, you know, guys just tried to start finding areas to start digging and where would, you know, you know, where would survivors be in voids and pockets. And so um, 
we had gotten to that point, and at this point, I kind of split off and tried to start looking for some guys that were, you know, from Rescue One. And I want to see if I could pull up a picture for you right now. Um, but I found my fire truck that was assigned to my company. So let me see if I could pull up this picture and bring it up. But um, across the West Side Highway in Manhattan was this like a sky bridge basically mm -hmm. it went from the trade center across the highway so they didn't have to cross this four lane like mega busy highway um so they can get to the you know the office buildings and the smaller buildings on the other side and this building was completely uh this uh, here it is um i'll tell you a funny story about this too uh so i don't know if you can see this this that well but oh, yeah no, bring it up Oh, yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay. Jesus Christ. So that's Rescue One's rig underneath the bridge Jesus. that went across the West Side Highway. And so the whole front of the rig was crushed by this bridge and, and debris. And I was able to go into the back of the rig. And it was actually burning on the inside. And I had um, found like a fire extinguisher that we had, you know, a small fire extinguisher. And we were able to kind of like put out the rest of the fire. And I had since at that point linked up with a few other guys that I knew and just started to pull some gear, whatever was left on the rig off the rig, what wasn't destroyed. And, you know, and then we just started going to work and digging and trying to figure out where our brothers were. And, you know, um, basically 10 months went by. I spent 10 months worth of digging down there. Um, and what happened was what they did in special operations and, and a lot of the regular units did too. So I don't want to take away from anybody. Um, but in special operations, they just basically kept a 24 hour presence there seven days a week for 10 months. So at first, just when you weren't working, you were down there digging. And then you went to the firehouse and you did your shift and you would get a little bit of rest and you would do your shift and you would go back and dig. Then they kind of worked the rotation and said, okay, um, rescue one's going to be down on the pile today. And that's what they ended up starting to call it. And the rest of the units will go back and service and stay in service. And um, if anything happens, so we'd, we're digging and, you know, we're from rescue one. And now we come across a rescue two guy and we start making identifiers, whether it's from identification, you know, stuff that we could figure out. We would continue to dig, but we would call the company and say, Hey, we found one of your guys. We're working on it. Now that company would then now be sent back to the site. So if the time came that we dug them out, cause sometimes it would take, you know, hours and hours, maybe even days to dig these guys out because of the way they were buried and mangled. And, um, and then the company who they belonged to would carry that guy out. And it was a courtesy that was afforded. So if rescue one was off and squad 41 was digging and they found the rescue one guy, they would always call. They would never carry him out of the site. They would let the company who he belonged to. And, and if it was a regular company, any company, that they found someone, they would call that company. The company would come down to the site and they would carry their member out and uh, or whatever was left of their member at that point. And, uh, you know, that continued on. And it's like various different stories. I'd have to go back into the memory bank and some crazy stuff and some stuff that I probably shouldn't say just in case God forbid some family members or ever come across stuff like this. But, uh, you know, we spent uh, a lot of time um, – 
Um, and there's some things that people say, like, you know, they, they love to bash Christy Todd Whitman, who was the, you know, what was it? Not the, the EPA commissioner or whatever. She was in charge of the EPA at that time for the federal government. And they had said that the air was safe. I can tell you from my own perspective, whether they would have said the air is not safe or safe, I would have continued yeah. to dig, you know, yeah. there were, you know, while we were digging, we also were dealing with the families back at the firehouse. Like at my firehouse, 11 guys were killed. Two of them were officers, the captain and the most senior lieutenant. There's only 25 firemen and four officers assigned to each company. So it was one captain and three lieutenants. So half of our command staff was gone and half the company was gone. And that was pretty much the case in a lot of firehouses. Half the firehouse was gone. Uh oh, you there? Yeah. Are you there? I lost you again. Oh, well, I think oh, I got you again. Back? Are you back? Yeah. 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 You, you froze up for a second, but I still I still got all the audio. Yeah. Right. So, like I said, in a lot of the firehouses throughout the city, and none of the the the, the issues that I'm bringing up were just to special operations. Um, all, all the firehouses that were affected had the same thing. Special operations was greatly affected because of the amount of people that went there. Out of the 343 guys that were killed that day, now hundreds have died afterwards um, from various ailments related to 9-11. But out of the 343, 90-plus were from special operations. So basically, if you worked in special operations that day, with the exception of the two companies that didn't get assigned because they wanted to keep them for the rest of the whole city, yeah, the rest of um, New York City. Yeah, um, they wanted some special operations capability for the rest of the city, so they kept these two units, which happened to be the furthest ones away. Um, they kept them available to respond to the rest of the city for any um, heavy rescue that would normally be Just, needed during the day. Um, you you died, and it was the night shift and the day shift, or you know the the night tour and the day tour. They called it. So a lot of firehouses lost double, and you know that's why it, it was so ultra devastating. On top of it, we lost our chief of department. We lost the one of the high uh, uh, first deputy commissioner. We lost some really high the, the chief of special operations, um, who I grew up with his sons back on Long Island in Deer Park. He was one of the most respected guys. And in a major disaster like this, he was the guy to turn to. He was dead. Um, a lot of the, the the senior officers in special operations, they were all dead. A lot of chief officers were every, basically, we all know now, everybody was dead. So now, on top of that, you saw what Rescue One's rig looked like. A lot of the rigs were destroyed because they were all parked fairly close to the buildings. They were absolutely annihilated. So they had no. They had to dig up all these old spare rigs. All the tools were gone. Everything was gone. It was gone. Everything. The water infrastructure was gone. Um, they they took old fireboats, like 1930 something fireboats. And at the time, our fireboat fleet was very old. Like one of the fireboats was from the 40s, still operating in 2001. <clears throat> Another was from the 60s. 
They took all decommissioned fire boats out of and fired them back up, and they basically backed up to portions of the bulkhead in Lower Manhattan and just ran miles of hose, yeah. you know, to get to the you know to the ground zero area, and just pumped millions and millions of gallons of water when it was needed because the hydrant system was gone it was gone it was completely devastated um that high-rise building i was telling you it burned for like days boop 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 fires and you know the fire just kept going from floor to floor to floor to floor to floor and eventually they said okay you know they they had set up some signals and went hey when we tell you stop working and run you stop working and you run and everyone get out of the way that building came down. I think that was like whatever, another ten or some story building. Like, like never in my lifetime would I say, "Oh, we're gonna write off a ten plus story building." I forgot how many floors it was. Yeah. Okay, that building fell. Everybody just rushed back in. It was just like, okay, it was so. Okay, building's down. Great, we got to go back to work. Um. So. You know, we just continued to work and then we would go back and each day, once you kind of figured out where your company was, of course, when you went back to work, you wanted to work in that building. And, and they really did do a good job in, in putting us back to work in the areas where we knew our company was. Once you found one guy, you knew the others could be somewhere close by. Um, as I was saying before, while this is all going on, we're also attending to the families. Most of the families have were at the firehouse for days and days and days. You know that, you know they want to know what happened to their loved ones. They can't go home and say, "Hey, just go home and get some sleep. We'll call you." You know that's not happening. Yeah. Um, you know, and then they're posting posters all over the place, and they're hoping and with the, in the deepest of their hearts that the guy was able to either walk away or was stunned or was like delirious somewhere. You know, and unfortunately that wasn't it. And um, and I'll get into how, how those things progressed on uh, a little bit later on. But probably one of the most disturbing, you know, and just how amazing it was when when you talk about when people say, oh, well, you know, they didn't really find a lot of people. And they didn't. I mean, I think even still to this day, there's triple-digit firemen that were never found. <clears throat> we got to a guy that was kind of trapped in a void. And we heard him calling out. And so we start working on digging him out. We're talking to the guy. We're talking to him. He even kind of sticks his fingers underneath like an area. So we're talking to him and say, all right, man, we're going to get to you. Just hang in there. And uh, at this time, in New York City, iron workers, construction workers, I mean, these guys, they're the real unsung heroes because they came in with a lot of the heavy equipment. And New York City iron workers, man, they know how to fucking move steel. You need to move steel. These guys know how to move it. And without them, we would have never been able to accomplish cleaning up that site and even remotely digging for people. So long story short, we're digging, we're digging, we're digging, we're talking to this guy, we're digging. Um, and now whatever's left at a Marriott hotel, that's where he was, <clears throat> is, is becoming unstable. And we kind of started to get away from, you know, because at, at every, you know, of course they brought in engineers and all these structural super guys. And, you know, every 10 seconds they wanted us to stop working. And it was just getting like, fuck the engineers. Like, you take a look around, you make a, you make a, a, a realistic assessment. And what ended up happening was we started deferring to the iron workers. Those guys, like I said, 
They know how to fucking move steel. Yeah. They know how it reacts, even when it fails. They, you know, you know, like they just had a better sense of what was going on. Yeah. So if the iron workers said, "Hey, man, we gotta go," it was never questioned. We were like, yeah. "We're out of here." Iron workers say it's time to fucking go. It's fucking time to go. Yeah. So long story short, we're working on trying to get this guy out, and. The Marriott Hotel is becoming unstable. Because one of the things that's happening is as guys are digging and they're moving shit, stuff that was previously stable is now becoming unstable. There's just no way around it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they're like, we got to get out of here. So we take a rope and we tie it to a beam right where we know the guy is, right? Kind of where, you know, we, we had contact with them. And we tie it, we truck out of there. Secondary collapse. We go back and we don't hear this guy anymore. And, and we're digging, we're digging, we're digging. I went back to that site for days, Tommy, and we fucking finally uncovered the whole fucking site and we never found a stitch of them. Not one stitch. And the one thing, like, I hope it doesn't affect me someday, but you never know. I used to just carry like a giant bottle of fucking Advil in my pocket because every kind of smoke and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the EPA and saying, yeah, why don't you wear a respirator? I say to anyone, put a respirator on, period, and then just, you know, walk around with it and see how comfortable it is to breathe through a respirator with the canisters. And then I want you to like start working out and digging holes and jumping up and down and climbing up and down ladders and, and just work solid for like hours and see how easy it is to breathe through a respirator. Yeah, we tried, but after a while, you just couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, like, it, and we didn't have the manpower to rotate out. Nor did you have the will to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, I can't breathe. Uh, I'm going to go sit and take a break now. You know, hey, man, my brothers are fucking buried. There may still be fucking guys alive in there. Yeah. We don't know. You know, I mean, after a certain point in time, you said no. And, like, all the different colored smokes and, and um, you know, I, I had fucking mind-numbing headache every day. Every day. So I would just take handfuls of Advil, handfuls of Advil just to get it to stop and I can keep working. And at one point, I just remember like we were guys, you know, crafty and, and the, you don't think about it then, but you look back at it years later. And, and we talked about it, the balls that some guys had and some of the shit that guys did at this site that were just beyond insane. And, and I was involved in some, like at one point, like I told you that one big main rubble pile had to be seven or eight stories tall. So they had to get to the top to start tunneling down to try to find the guys. And basically it was the core, what was left of the stairway core, the way that uh, trade centers were designed was both, um, both towers were a concrete core mm -hmm. at the stairwells and the elevator banks in them. And then from there, they ran truss work out to four walls. And those two buildings happened to be in, in high-rise construction in New York City. The exterior walls are not considered bearing walls. Yeah, It's a skeleton type of construction, and, and it's a very sturdy, stable type of construction. The trade center was different. 
It was trust construction. And trust construction is a great engineering thing, but from from a construction standpoint, but from a firefighting standpoint, it was a horror show because they failed quickly. And once they fail because of the engineering, it's usually a catastrophic type of failure. So they had all trust that went out to the four walls. So that's why there was why those buildings collapsed and uh, that it was trust construction. And if you go back, I read a book many years previous, it was called high rise fire and safety when I was, you know, continuing to learn my craft. Um, and it was written at the time by a guy named John O'Hagan, who was the chief of department at the time and the New York city fire department. And he died prior to nine 11, but he would go to the meetings when they were building the World Trade Center. Obviously, it was a big deal for New York City. This was a big event. And he would go to the construction meetings. And obviously, you know, they'd invite the fire chief and this guy and that guy. And he would say, these buildings, the design is a disaster. If anything ever of major consequence happens in this building, it's going to be a major disaster. Do you got? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, thanks, chief. Yeah, all right, chief. Hey, zip it, all right? Yeah, thanks. We got it, but the engineers know better than you. And he's like, I'm telling you, these fucking buildings are a disaster. If something ever happens, it will be a disaster. And, you know, who, who would have thought, you know, crashing two planes into it? You know, if you go back and you do a little Google history, I think it was a B-52 or a B-something crashed into the side of the Empire State Building. Yeah, built, yeah the B-29, yeah. In the 20 it, the, the Empire State Building didn't fall down, you know, because it was old school construction. Limestone, yeah. So, um, you know, so they went ahead, they built the buildings, uh, and, you know, and now this major catastrophe happens. And so we had to kind of get down in from the top, you know, rather than try to dig in from the sides. We wanted to say, hey, can we get into that stairwell? Maybe guys are in there. Guys would climb to a certain point and they would tie ladders to the rubble, whatever was stable. Then they pass a ladder up and they tie and they, you know, tie it and guys would hold it and guy would climb and he would tie the top of that ladder and they pass another ladder up. And they did this for like seven stories at least. And that's what we took every day to get up to the top of this. And then we we had gotten to a point where we had burrowed so far down, digging down, and you know we're passing torches up and, and heavy equipment, and you know even the heavy equipment couldn't get to it because the rubble pile was so vast that the heavy equipment it was going to take months for them to get to that area. So we said, well, we got to climb it. We got to climb to the top of this fucking thing. That we couldn't get fire trucks in there with ladders or anything because you couldn't get close enough. We said, ah, we got to scale it. And that's what the guys ended up doing. And then they would get up and they would pull all this heavy equipment up there and you would just work up there for fucking hours and hours and hours and hours. And it got to the point where we burrowed so far down that now it became unstable. You know, because we were burrowing down inside this thing, creating like a hollow tube now at this point. And we did. We found a lot of guys that way or pieces of guys, you know, like I, I use my company, but I won't use names. Um, you know, uh, we found a hand in a glove and that's all we found. Uh, one of the guys I work with who happened to be a good friend of mine, we found his helmet and never found another thing. 
we found portions of other guys. Um, and then we found some guys that we kind of found some guys we found whole, completely whole. And then some guys we found whole, but because they were so twisted and tangled and they were not going to stay that way, you know? So, um, but it just became what it was. You just kept going. And then every time you found somebody or something that was closure for the family, you know, um, I can't imagine for some of the families, uh, that, that nothing was found. You know, and I had two good friends that I grew up with in Deer Park. One was a cop and one was a fine. One of them was a real close personal friend of mine. Um, and two brothers, and the father was also a fireman. <clears throat> Both brothers were killed that day. And they found one brother, and they never found the other. As a matter of fact, the other brother, they never found anyone in this whole company. The whole company. So six guys... They found nobody. So, um, you know, and then it just continued on. And um, I, I have to say, and like we talked about it with the coronavirus, you know, that was a, point, a time when it was really amazing how people really came together and, and the support that we got from the city and the support that we got from the neighborhoods and, and everyone. And there was always food trucks there and there was always people bringing food and, you know, trucks would pull up. And now it was like, obviously it happened in September and now the winter's coming and trucks would pull up and they would have like car heart stuff for you that, you know, they would give stuff to guys to dig with. And, um, you know, it was really tremendous to see the support there were, you know, and, um, I kind of see glimpses of that now, but nowhere near that, you know, and, you know, you, you have these few different memories that you have, like, like when after I found my rig that I was telling you about, I'm walking across the pile, heading towards an area to dig, and a very good friend of mine, very good close personal friend, um, you know, saw him, and we just kind of ran up to each other, and gave each other a big hug, and said, oh, man, I'm glad you're alive, and I was like, yeah, man, you too, you know, and, um, you know, and then another thing was, is I had rushed off to work. I, at the time I was married to my ex-wife and she was a school teacher. I pulled up to the school. I said, come outside. I go, here's your daughter. I got to go. It's bad. And she's like, well, I'm working. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm out of here. I got to go. And I said, go watch the TV. <clears throat> you know, and then everybody was kind of getting an idea of what was going on. I, uh, I had a cell phone at the time. I think I had AT&T back then. Um, but again, all the cell phone service in low Manhattan was gone. Yeah. The infrastructure of Manhattan was gone. So the fire department did a lot of great things and they did a lot of stupid things too, because all the leadership was gone. And like I said, we were taking care of the families and then it got to the point where they just said, like, we have a funeral detail that when a, a fireman dies, there's a whole unit that'll go in and walk the family through the whole process and walk them through the formal funeral. Well, we were doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 funerals a week at, at some points. There was just, you know, so many. They just said, each of the companies, you handle them on your own. You guys got it. You have to take it. So you were digging, you were working your normal tours as a firefighter, 
and you were supporting the families and whatever their services that they wanted and whether some had memorial services, some waited, some waited for months until they just couldn't wait anymore. Um, but one of the things, you know, that the fire department did early on was they released a missing list of firefighters missing. Except all they did, instead of basing it off going to the firehouses, and now they have everything done electronically so they would know exactly who was working. Back then, everything was on paper. So you didn't know, you had an idea of who was working, but you didn't know, it wasn't something you could pull up quickly. You would, it was per firehouse and per battalion and per division that knew who was working. And really, almost per firehouse at that point. Like, the battalion didn't know the five guys that were working. He just knew the five guys were working in that firehouse. It was the firehouse's job to maintain the men. Well, all they did was they took the group chart, right? And, and the New York City Fire Department works on what's called a 25 group chart. And uh, there's each firefighter is assigned to a group, and then they, they kind of, in a cycle, they run the groups through. And um, I don't, it take me a little while to explain the chart to you. It's not even worth explaining, but there's a chart. And um, so whatever groups were assigned that day, so if it was like 24 through 5, they just, all they did was look and say, okay, this is who was assigned to group five in that firehouse. He must be missing. Well, if I was assigned to group five, but I did a 24 with my mutual partner, well, then I wasn't. So what happened was I hadn't talked to my family in days because there was no way for me to talk to them. There was no way for me to get a phone call to them. And cell phone technology back then wasn't even that good. Like, Years ago, you buy a cell phone and you had like 30 minutes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you, you only used it when you needed it. Yeah, it was emergency. That, and you, the thing was like this big and you're like pulling it, pan her out and, you know. <laughs> um, so I hadn't talked to my family in probably three, four days. I had, you know, three young daughters and the missing firefighter list came out and I was on it. And a lot of Friends and family and people saw the missing firefighter list. So I had left long before the towers collapsed. So they had no idea. So I was finally able, after the first few days, because I I don't remember how many days I stayed at the site straight, um, did I, I, I finally get back to the firehouse and then there was landlines that I was able to call my house and let them know that I was still alive. And I, I don't, I don't remember. I didn't go home for probably the first time I went home, home probably was an easy two weeks into the operation. You know, they just finally were like, go home deep compress for a day and then come back, you know, but there was that overwhelming urge. Yeah. Um, just, I had to be there and everybody it wasn't just me. Don't, don't I'm not tooting my own horn. Yeah. There's guys that did a lot more, than I did by far, but you know, um, you know, I guess that would be the condensed version, you know? And then, you know, if, if people ask me, I, I'm at peace with what happened. I don't have survivor's guilt because if it was the other way around, you know, the 24s were what they were. I mean, we always did them. I feel terrible that, you know, my mutual partner passed away, um, because he was working for me. But, you know, it's not something that was out of the ordinary, you know. And then there were so many stories, like one of the guys in my firehouse, he was retiring. He had his retirement papers in his locker, you know. 
Um, another guy was, you know, in his sixties and didn't want to retire and, and, and he got killed, you know? So, um, you know, when people say, oh, you, you want, you know, if you want me to talk about it, I will. Uh, you know, I don't ever like, hey, how you doing? I'm Tony Tadashi. And, yeah. you know, I was at 9-11. Yeah. I'm, I don't ever usually say that. I'll say that I work for the FDNY and people ask me, hey, you know, where are you dead? So, yep, I was there. And if you want to ask questions, fine. I'm not going to start to elaborate unless like someone like you said, hey, would you mind, you know, let me know what's going on? Because what happens, and it just happened to me recently, like I told you, I was going to tell you. I'm in a bar fairly recently and I got some guy, former New Yorker, living down here now. Yeah, you know, I did this and I did that and I did this. And I I think he probably did do a lot of shit, you know? I I, I don't doubt him for a second. He was a tradesman, he wasn't a flyman. And he's fucking arguing with me about the rescue rig he pulled out when actually, now I pulled out ladder three from the underneath the bridge. Now I knew ladder three was parked behind my rig. There's certain things like burnt into my brain, like that picture that I showed you. That's burnt into my brain. I remember certain things. There's snapshots that I took, I guess, unconsciously in my brain. I'm like, no, bro, that's not how. Don't you fucking tell me I fucking did it. I was a. I'm like, I'm like, listen, man, I, I, I'm not. I don't want to argue with you. Ah, well, you know, just because, you know, I know, like, and he wasn't breaking my balls that I was a fireman. He was actually very supportive of fireman. But it's sometimes people that love to fucking talk about or, and I, I'm, I, I know that, you know, just listening to him talk, I know he worked down there a long time, so I got to give him credit. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the way he introduced himself to me was, yeah, I don't have my money and I won't say his name. Oh, and by the way, I was at the trade center. Okay, you know, I could be a fucking UPS driver. He happened to know I was a fireman. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, I don't say, how you doing? Th-? Like when you first met me, I don't say, hey, Tommy, I'm a fireman, and I was at the trade yeah. center. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to the story, finally had had enough, and I just said, hang on a second. And I went to my phone, and just like I had to do, unfortunately for you, I probably should have been a little better prepared, but I didn't really have anything scripted in my mind. I had to scroll through my pictures and I go, so are you fucking sure about that fucking truck you pulled out? Are you fucking sure? Don't you fucking tell me, you know, and of course everybody's in the cups and I'm like, Boop. I threw my phone down on the table and he looked at it and he's like, what the fuck? You were right. I go, yeah, I know it's fuck. Yeah. You should sometimes know your audience before you fucking pound your chest. Yeah. Those are the people I want to avoid. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of people, even regular people, not firemen, not cops, not EMS, a lot of regular people did a lot of great things. A lot of people. That's what I was talking to you about, that whole unity. And there's so many yeah. things that went on and even the support systems of what people did to support the workers that were down there. A lot of people got sick and died. A lot of people are getting sick and dying. Um you know, there was that very famous photo of the the black woman that was completely covered in dust, mm-hmm. and she was able to get into a store and they washed the face off. She just recently died, like I think last year, of cancer, and it was all nine eleven related. And you know, all she did was run for her life. You know, I know guys that dove under rigs and survived. Um, you know, and, and when. 
and, and I don't even care about getting political because I'm not when when people try to tell me, oh yeah, you know, we can't be anti-Muslim. Like, oh, I'm not anti-Muslim. I'm anti-radical Muslim. And I was there and I was at the fucking site and, and you're listening to fucking bodies hitting the fucking floor and crashing down. You know, when people jump out of a building at 70, 80, 90 stories, they know they're not living, but they'd rather fucking die free falling and splat on the fucking ground than burn to death. You understand how that fucking happened? And then you get these people that are like, you know, 9-11 truthers. 9-11 never happened. That was, that was a controlled implosion. I walked by one of the fucking plane engines. I walked by in the street. I walked by the fucking landing gear. You know, there were plane seats. We saw them. Like, you know, unless it was so elaborately staged, you know, you just say to yourself, wow. And not too soon after that, and you, you just become so callous because now, like, we're a month into digging and the smell of death and, you know, you're just used to it. I smell death even to this day or I smell, like... Tremendous amount of cement, dust, and silica. It'll bring me back to those days. But a plane crashed in the Rockaways. I don't know if you remember. A plane took off out of JFK. And the fucking thing went up. And it was just starting to ascend. And the fucking tail broke off. And it went, boom, right down into a fucking neighborhood in Rockaways, Long Island. Blocks and blocks of fucking houses. Killed everybody on board. So here we are, raw in New York City. Um, everyone's thinking, oh, another terrorist attack. We all fucking go rushing into the fucking city again. And I remember um, just basically walking through the fuselage of the plane, you know, with all the people still strapped into their seats. Everyone's, you know, burnt up, you know, very severely. And having like no, no reaction. Just see, you say, wow, man. Like, and at that point, they, they were able to quickly get control, and they grabbed all the volunteers, and it got to a point where they said, stop coming in. We can't have this, because then it was just like... And, and they were they were 100% right. You know, things were, like, out of control. And then I'd say the other thing that I absolutely remember is, you know, you know, in the midst of all those things that I was telling you, you know, finding my way to the West Side Highway, figuring out where we were, going to the pile, I, on that first day... And, you know, you know it's a terrorist attack, and you're like, fuck, what's going to happen? What are these motherfuckers going to do now? And what's next? And, you, you know, we didn't hear about, like, the Pentagon and all that shit because, you know, we were immersed in this. But then you hear, and you look up overhead, and you see the F-16s, you know, or whatever they were flying all over the place. And you just said, you know what, man? We got this. We're good. Yeah. Those motherfuckers ain't going to let anyone else come into this airspace. They'll shoot down every fucking plane they have to. And I I don't want to, like, it wouldn't have stopped me from doing anything, but I could tell you, like, in a weird, strange way, the sense of pride to say, hey, man, thank you. I can go fucking dig without worrying about some other fucking plane coming or them doing something else coming. Because one of the things, you know, in in all the extensive terrorism training I went through was uh, one of the things terrorists like to do is they like to kill the first responders. Yeah. That's that's a thing for them to do is to cause an incident, have the first responder come, and then kill them. Yeah. Because what causes greater panic than when you kill the people that come to help? 
Now you have ultra panic. And, um, you know, having multiple attacks at multiple times is, uh, you know, pretty much uh, a hallmark of, of, you know, that type of swarm type of terrorism where you overwhelm resources. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why they do it. And quite effectively. Um, but remembering those planes flying overhead, seeing my, my good friend Joey, you know, I don't want to say they were positive notes, but... Out of out of what went on, the most positive things I could say that just said, "Okay, man, we're gonna be all right. We just gotta keep going now. I gotta put our fucking heads down." I mean, obviously at that time we had some hope that we would still find some brothers and sisters alive, but that unfortunately did not happen. I mean, they did dig one guy out that, um, but or actually a, a company of guys, but um, I wasn't involved in that operation. But everyone else was dead. Everybody, everybody. And then I even got calls from friends and cousins at, at you know at some point. And I had a good, you know, one of my uh, closer knit cousins. We, we were much closer knit when we were younger, and, and our family spent a lot of time together. And as we got older and got married and all that, we, you know, we, we kind of grew apart. But I got a, a, a call from my uncle Donald and, and Aunt Nettie, and uh, I think I know my uncle Donald passed away. I'm not sure if my aunt Nettie's still alive, but their daughter, um, her husband was in one of the towers and they called and they just said, you know, if we send you a picture, would you mind just keeping an eye out for him? I mean, I, don't know, I, just, I said, of course, you know, and I did, I carried the picture with me just in case I found something and his name. And, you know, if we ever came across a, a civilian um, or what we thought was a civilian or anything with identifying, I mean, at that point I had remembered his name. I would, you know, you know, give them the heads up, but, you know, it never happened. So, so I guess that's my story in a nutshell. I'm sure I missed a lot of stuff, but it's like 19 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be here now. It's probably one of the reasons why I retired a little bit earlier than I anticipated. Not that I had to, um, but you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys are getting ill and passing away. And, um, you know, pretty much, guy I was telling you about Phil Ruvolo, the captain, who was really dead on about everything. I mean, and he was a really cool operator. I don't want to say cold and calculating, but he was just, you know, really matter of fact. Um, and just like, listen, man, there's going to be a lot of dead guys. You guys got to prepare yourself. A lot of our brothers are dead, and, and that's just the way it's going to be. And we, we just need to go. We need to operate, and you need to just push through that and, and just do not let it, you know, um, you know cloud your judgment. And then we would talk, you know, in the months and weeks and months to come and even well after. And then years after that, I ended up transferring from Rescue 1 to Rescue 2 sometime after 9-11. And um, I was working in Rescue 2. And I remember sitting in the kitchen in that firehouse in Bergen Street, and he would just say, yeah, you know, guys, we got to take it in 10-year blocks. He goes, I think we're going to see... Guys die, you know, get the weird cancers and all this shit in the first 10 years. So if you make it through the first 10 years, you know, you, you, you probably got a good shot of making it through the next 10 years. If you make it through the next 10 years, then then you might be in pretty good shape. Um, and for the most part, he was right. But now we're starting to see guys getting all weird shit or it's eventually catching up to you. So you got to try to maintain a healthy lifestyle and 
you know, depends on what doctor you talk to. I've spoken to some doctors affiliated with the fire department and they like to say, uh, you know, they anticipate that most guys will get swallowed up by this and other doctors are more optimistic and say, no, I think it could be upwards of 10%. Like I know a lot of guys that work right side by side with me and have devastating lung injuries. For me, I'm lucky and I'm certainly, you know, I'm more, you know, uh, from seeing me at the gym, I'm no gazelle. I, I'm more of a, you know, uh, what's those uh, those type of uh, Clydesdale when yeah. it comes to you know moving at you know being fast or anything like that. I can go for a long time. Yeah, I'm just not gonna do it real fast. Yeah. You know, I don't have that runner's physique. I never did. Uh, yeah. I'm like bulky as yeah. opposed to chicken cutletly. Yeah. But I know a lot of guys that have devastating lung injuries, and right now, knock on wood, I'm not having any issues. So I want to have a good, you know, few good years of retirement. Uh, and if it comes, it comes. You know, I, I'm pretty much reside the fact that it may come. And if it comes, I'm not going to be angry. The only thing I ever say, you know, you watch some of these politicians, and you know, they had a fairly recently last year, and some guys did a tremendous job about you know, sponsoring the, what's called the World Trade Center bill. And, you know, and I'm a pretty staunch Republican, but there was a lot of idiot Republicans that were like balking at this for yeah, like yeah. dumb reasons. And there were a lot of Democrats who I really disagree with politically that did get behind that bill yeah. and were instrumental in getting it passed. And a guy I really disagree with, John Stewart, was absolutely instrumental yeah. and has done tremendous work uh, for the guys that are sick. And my thing is, is I don't really care about me. I'm not going to sue and I don't want a million dollars. I just want to take care of my family, man. If I check out because of nine 11, just take care of my family. That's all I want. Yeah. Uh, I made my choice. I'd make it again. You know, people say, Oh, you, like you get some of the Monday morning quarterbacks or some of the knuckle. Like, oh, why'd you run into that building? I know, you know, the police helicopters saw that the building was swaying. Yeah, they did. And, you know, unfortunately, and even still to this day, the intercommunication abilities are much better between the FDNY and the NYPD. Back then, it was basically, it had to be face to face with a cop talking to a fireman that can call each other on each other's radios. It, you know, so the helicopter yeah the building looks like it's starting to lean wasn't getting back to anybody and uh, nobody myself included and even the fucking best and the the most amazing firemen with that were there that day ever fathomed that those buildings would come down and you know i had people that were in the fire service question like what you know you, with those buildings you know you guys were all in the collapse zone and you know well first off you're not getting out of the collapse zone of a 110 story building yeah okay yeah, you gotta secondly that's your job guy it's called protect life and property so at that point there was still tons of life thank god it was earlier than nine o'clock because then there would have been a lot more people in the building. There was still a lot of people, but that's your job. It's your job to run into those buildings, and they have tons of iconic images of the firemen going up the stairs, mm -hmm. and they're all, and and the people coming down the stairs, and you can watch a bazillion of those 9-11 specials or the discussions that some of the people had with the firefighters that were heading up. You know, one of the more iconic things were uh, the captain of my company, Terry Hatton, um, again, probably one of the most respected fire captains on the job at that time, um, ran into one of his really good friends who was also a fireman in the lobby, 
of the Trade Center um, before he was heading up, and uh, he was working that day. Well, he was actually coming on that morning, and he hugged him and said, I'm probably not going to see you again, brother. And then he went to work, and he didn't see him again, you know? So, um, you know, like, and, and even people in our own service would question why we did certain things, and, you know, I'd do it all over again. I wouldn't change it a thing, you know, like, yeah, 2020 is hindsight, but hey, there were people in that building. And then even when we went back later and all the shit that we breathed in and all, yeah, so what? And there was, there was guys buried, um, all over the guys. There was a lot of guys that I was very good friends with and yeah, man, I'll do whatever I can do to try to get their families some closure. And if I was buried in that pile, I would hope that they wouldn't leave me behind either. And to New York City's credit, and certainly the iron workers and the construction workers and, and all the, and the regular units, and I don't want to leave them out. I talk a lot about special operations because that's where I lived. But they set up task force of guys that were assigned to work for like weeks at a time down at the trade center from all the other outlying companies in all the boroughs. And they would rotate guys in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, you know, special operations just maintain the presence for the whole time, but that's because they wanted to. And, and they had, you know, because of, of the, the larger amount of guys that they had missing. And um, they dug that thing down and, when it came time for the engineers to kind of like shore up those slurry walls and like we would be working as we dug down past ground level. Now we were underground and the water would be leaked through these walls because this was built, yeah, you know, bad. into the bedrock, but the base of, of Manhattan is kind of mushy. Yeah. And they had these slurry walls that they had built in there previously, but now they were all compromised. And they did amazing feats of engineering, keeping those walls back. Because if they let go, at some point in time, they had built a really long, steep ramp that they could drive vehicles down. But you weren't getting out of that hole anytime soon. Like, that's where the cascading pools are now. So if you've ever been in, I personally haven't been back to the Trade Center Memorial yet. I haven't been to the... the, you know, to the museum that's underground there. Um, I'm going to do it. I just haven't done it. You know, I haven't brought myself to going back there. I spent a lot of time and it's not that I don't want to. It's just, I don't, I'm not motivated to do it for some reason. And my aunt keeps asking me, so I got to take her. She just turned 80 over the weekend. So I can't really push her off too much longer. Um, so that's going to be one of the things I got to do. But um, they dug it right down to the ground, man. And anything that they could find, uh, we did. And um, there's still, to this day, uh, there's still, with newer technology, identifying people. Every once in a while, you hear it pop out in the news, especially in the New York news, that they identified yet another person from 9-11. And, um, you know, it's 19 years later. So it's pretty incredible. You know, it's, it's just some of the people will never be found because, you know, one, they were absolutely pulverized. And two, the fires burned there for, for months yeah. and months. and months. Like we would get to areas where the steel was just molten. Giant eye beams like that were just like, you could see them as liquid. And then we'd have to cool them down before we can go any further. Because, you know, like, you know, like you kind of get that, uh, you know, garbage pile type. And I don't want to use the word garbage pile, but like that internal fire that just never goes out. 
you know, cause it's still getting oxygen and, yeah. and, and all those things. So, um, so there it is in a nutshell, Thomas. Jesus. I'm Christ, sure I missed man. a lot of stuff. Jesus Christ, man. That, <clears throat> God damn, man. Yeah, man. It, Dude, I really don't. I, I don't know what to say, man. I, that was brutal. I mean, you know what it comes down to? Like when people say, "Oh my God," I, I don't think there's very few people that were either on the job or say you lived in New York and you wanted to be a New York City fireman. You know, we're just ordinary people, and that's just your job. And sometimes you have to rise to the occasion. And for the most part, you know, I'm sure there's a select few guys that, that did it. But for the most part, everybody did. And it's just all regular guys, just like me and you. No one's superstars. Like, I'm certainly no rocket scientist and anything of that sort. I went into civil service because I was a knucklehead in school. I was a knucklehead in general. You know, I was either civil service or the military. It was yeah. one or the other, you know. And, um, you know. Some guys did some really amazing things. Don't get me wrong. Um, but most people would have done the same thing. You know, you just don't know until you're faced with it. Yeah. You know, if you ever listen to those guys and, you know, you and I have talked about it, whether it's like, I know Jocko's real hardcore, but you listen to a guy like David Goggins or I just listened to uh, some other guy. Um, just listen to a podcast like, you know, I listened to your podcast, some guy that was a SEAL that became a doctor that became an astronaut, you know. Oh, and, uh, you know, uh, Johnny he, Kim, Johnny K. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, John, Mr. America. Right. Right. And then, like, when you listen to his story, it was like, oh, my God, like, his father used to beat his mother. He was 140 pounds. And, you know, he's talking, yeah, my father passed away. And then sometime later in the story, oh, yeah, he passed away because the cops shot him in the attic after he tried to kill his mother and peppers it. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, I had a, you know, I mean, I didn't have a great childhood, but I didn't have a horrible childhood, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so people are really capable of shit if you just want to do it. And when the occasion comes, and it may never come, you know, you listen to a lot of those guys, you know. Prior to 9-11 and all the wars, even the Super Warriors, they went on some cool shit, but nothing like they did afterwards. Yeah. So it was time to rise to the occasion. And if you get the opportunity, well, then you got to take that opportunity to rise to the occasion. And most people will, you know, not not all, but, you know, I, I, I could lay my head down. And one of the things I never did that some guys did that I, I really despised was... You know, like I said, people became ultra supportive and then it was like, let me give you this, let me give you that. Oh, we'll fly you to California, we'll bring you to your family. And everything was really well-intentioned. And I don't not take anything away from any of the people that wanted to give us stuff. My own personal moral compass was um, a bunch of my friends are dead, man, and I ain't taking shit on their back. Yeah. Nothing. I don't want a free trip. Like, and I had a good friend that I, I lived with in the same town and he was like, no, nah, I'm taking everything, man. I'm like, no way. Fucking no way. And like, we're still friends, but we had a major fundamental. Thing. He's like, yeah, I'm going out to fucking Cali. I'm like, it's fucking bullshit, bro. He's like, you're fucked up. You got that. Fu you, you know, you and your fucking, I'm like, no, it's like, I don't want anything. 
I took a pair of work boots and a pair of Carhartt pants and a jacket, which I still have to this day. Only so I could stay warm while I was digging. That's it. That's all I fucking took. You know, um, I didn't want anything else. I didn't want a fucking free trip. I didn't want anything because I felt guilty to say, I'm going to enjoy myself somewhere. Well, my friends are still buried, or even if it was over, they paid with getting crushed and pulverized into fucking dust. And I'm going to go out to California or down to Disney World. Yeah, no, not going to happen. I don't fault the guys that did it, but I don't, I don't have to agree with it either. So, you know, and then there was funky things that went on, like, you know, some guys who didn't change their beneficiaries, guys married with kids, and mommy and daddy are still the beneficiaries. And you know, when people die, money does fucked up things to people. Like, we had to argue with some people, like, no, you have to give that money to your daughter-in-law for her kids. Like, she's going to get a... They're going to give her money. There's a lifetime pension plus money poured in from a lot of different areas. But it went to your beneficiaries. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, no, no, no. I'll give it to them when they need it. We're like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen, man. Like, you know, and there was cases like that. And all guys who forgot to take their ex-wives off, you know, and the new wife's like, what? And there was nothing you could do about it. Like, I can only imagine... Like the rotten fucking bitch oh. that I was married to, the, my ex-wife, like she would be jumping for joy to take the cash and wouldn't give my my new wife a fucking dime, not a dime. Like she would be like, <laughs> you know, it, it's so it, it like those were like backstories that no one had any idea that happened, and and these were things in the midst that we were taking care yeah. of all this stuff, you know. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I was gonna say on a what you said earlier about rising to the occasion. That's something Dale said in his book. Uh, for everyone listening, Dale Comstock, uh, Delta Force. Yeah, he said he said he, he it never ceased to surprise him how the most ordinary because what he was in he'd be operating under plausible deniability. So they don't go in with a bunch of other soldiers. They go in like two of them. And then you train the locals that way, that way no one knows who's behind it. Um, And he's like, yeah, he's like, you'd have these guys who couldn't speak English. They'd have like sandals on flip flops, you know, they'd be wiping their ass with their hands. And he's like, and then shit would go down and he'd be like, I'd see Navy SEALs ducking under covers. And he'd be like, and then these illiterate Afghan farmers, he's like, you just see like eye of the tiger. He's like, they'd lock and load and like, they'd be right. Like, me, like two other Delta Force operators, and like Abdul over here. <laughs> he'd be like, you know, he'd be like some, he's like some ordinary men. He's like, they just, ordinary men become extraordinary. That's what Dale said, though. He's like, yeah, when the occasion comes, he's like, yeah, you see, yeah. He's like, it's, it's almost kind of funny. He's like, you see these average Joe guys become superheroes. But, um, and, and it kind of goes back to the cliche of, you know, when people are in crisis or under pressure or, or you know, anything like that or, or put in, in, in a life-threatening situation, then you can really see what their metal is about, yeah. you know, and what, what, you know, what they're really made of. You know, some guy that runs and hides 
while another guy runs towards danger, you know, and, and that's why when I said, you know, yeah, we did some awesome shit. I, I had an amazing career. I had some really close calls and a lot of different things I did and just regular fires. And um, and I would never say that I would be on the level of a Delta or a SEAL, you know, level. I, I probably would have never made it in that world, you know, just in the fact that um, I think I could, would have definitely tried. But when, you know, the more I read and the more I, I listen to these guys and, you know, there's you know, regular people, then you get the people that are above, and then you get that sliver of superhumans. And those guys are the sliver of superhumans. Um, and listen, that guy that was wiping his ass with his hand could have been a superhuman it's just, if he lived in a different place. He didn't live in the 18, you know, yeah. not even like 700 BC, the yeah. way they still live in Afghanistan. Yeah. But That's what know. Dale said. He'd be like, yeah. He'd be like, you know, if this guy was born in... Detroit, like you know, he'd probably be a Navy SEAL too. It just so happens to be that he got dealt a shitty hand. But he'd be like, God damn, right. some of these guys would rise to the occasion and just like if they're American would have got medals of honor. So but yeah, it's um Yeah, man, it's yeah, it's I don't I don't think there's really anything wrong with pointing out what this was. This this was this was radical Islamic terrorism, and that's what it was. And call it out for what it is. It doesn't mean that you hate Muslims. It means you hate these fuckers that did this. Hey, look, I'm I'm blonde haired, blue eyed. I don't hate German people, but Jesus fuck, I hate Nazis. You know, my great uncle literally was on D Day at eighteen, like went and killed Nazis. Like, it's yeah. I'm not saying I hate hate all you know German people fucking hate nazis and it's the idea that we can't call this what it is like i I, i'm not saying we should be walking around saying you know radical islamic terrorism did this no not at all you don't have to it's just but the idea that you can't say it to me that it's no it's you cannot you know it's part of that pc culture like no one had a problem and i don't have a problem with it i'm italian when they said the Italian mafioso, and, yeah. and you know, like yeah, because yeah. guess what? A good portion of the mafioso were Italians, yeah, and they did some fucked up shit, man, and they were just bad fucking dudes, and yeah, you know, like certain neighborhoods they loved them, but in general they were not nice people, and most of the time they weren't nice to each other, but you know, yeah. um. No one said, "Oh my god, that's Insane. terrible." You say the Italian mafioso, yeah. like. Yeah, it was, and guess what? And I would say this to some liberal knuckleheads that I, you know, I used to talk to. Be like, and if it was a bunch of Italians that flew the planes into the building, I'd say those radical fucking Italian motherfuckers. The same way I would say yeah. about Arabs. Yeah. Hey man, like, like I'm a pasty white Irish. I, yeah, I'm a pasty white that? Irishman. Hey, but fuck the IRA. Fuck those people that put bombs off in civilian yeah, they areas. Want the guys and Call they what it is, yeah. Well, it's the Irish Republican, right, or whatever it was. Yeah. So we're going to strike that? You're just going to take that? You can't whitewash and sugarcoat everything, Yeah. you know? And and the only thing that I would say I find disappointing, I mean, listen, that, that's expected, but the thing I find disappointing is the further we get away, and I guess maybe it's just part of it, but the further we get away from 
the more and more people forget. You know, you listen to some of these politicians and the things that they say. We have some radical Muslims that are in our in our political system now. But, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. My daughter went to a school up in Connecticut. I won't name the school. Um, and obviously, Connecticut, part of the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. People in Connecticut worked in Manhattan. It's a short train ride away, mm. you know. Same thing for New Jersey. You know, a lot of New Jersey people work in In the tri-state area, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that was not directly affected or knew someone that was killed or knew someone that knew someone that was killed in 9-11. You know, we lost 3,000 people, and that's a lot of people to be killed. Um, Not 3,000 at the Trade Center, but in general, um, a lot of people. And here it is X amount of years later. And it's 9-11 on, she's on campus and, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, a quarter to nine comes, nine o'clock, nothing, no acknowledgement of it. Not even, hey, let's just have a moment of silence. Today is 9-11, nothing, not one. So she kind of calls me and she's all twisted up. So obviously she's deeply you know, affected by it because of everything. And a lot of the people that got killed, she knew, you know, um, went to a bunch of funerals. And, uh, so I said, well, if you're so pissed off, write a letter to the president of the university, which she did. She didn't even as much as get an answer. And for the four years that she was in that college, they never, ever, did not even i'm not saying have a big ceremony you can just say whatever they put out uh, you know the alerts and the tweets and this and that about every last little thing and you can't just say hey let's have a moment of silence at you know 8 46 when the first plane hit or you know pick the time when the second building fell or just pick a time at nine o'clock we're just gonna have a moment of silence and that'll be that just acknowledge that it happened Nope, nothing. For four years. And for four straight years, that kid wrote a letter to the president of the university. And for four straight years, never even got as much as an answer. And you just say to yourself, wow, this is one of our higher learning institutions. And history and the history of the country should be important, I think. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying everyone has to be a history major, but this is not the distant past you know we still remember pearl harbor yeah every december as we should and some places do a good job and some places it's business as usual and and that's the thing i kind of find disappointing because that was such a devastating attack on the homeland pearl harbor not lessening it was certainly you know an attack but it was a military attack on a military installation this was attack on the civilians and everyone that died was civilians. Yeah. So, yeah, well, you know, I'm with that. It's sickening to hear that about your daughter's school, but it also like, makes me proud, you know, where I was at high school and college university of Georgia. I mean, I remember, I remember. So my last September there was September, 2013. I vividly remember like we, it was like microbiology lab. And like we stopped and like just for like one minute at eight forty six. So 
that just makes me love the University of Georgia that much more. So shout out UGA. But yeah, man. It's- and it's in a lot of places, a lot of great things, you know. And like you said, what did you say? Did you, did they did they? No, they stopped for a minute. You, you had them, and that's all it takes. No one's saying have a, a full day of mourning. Just stop for a minute. Just just let everyone, especially the young kids like yourself, reflect for one minute. Yeah. One minute of your life. Yeah. Like okay. Onward and upwards. Back to work. Let's go. Woohoo! Yeah. I'm good with that. We want life to go back on. You know, we want life to continue. So it is what it is, man. You know, I just think it's part of it. Um, you know, I, I don't I try not to let things like that aggravate me. I try not to let a lot of things about 9 11 aggravate me. Because I'm still alive. Yeah. A lot of the guys <laughs> I'm not, so yeah. I just kind of looked at it like, hey, man, it could be a lot worse for me. I'm still here, and I'm just going to be thankful for that and not bitch too much about the other stuff. Yeah. Um, would you – so you and I had the original date that we were going to do this episode on, and then obviously you did it today because you're mm-hmm. awesome. Would you any chance want to still keep that date we have next week and in the following – in the time between then and now, I can post this in some – uh, emergency response like on reddit like firefighters or i can find subreddits and be like hey here's you know tony tedeschi who served on 9-11 as a firefighter was there because like, like with dale he kid dale came on delta force everyone loved it i then went and posted in like parts of reddit like special forces and people loved it they they asked a bunch of questions and uh tomorrow actually dale's gonna answer and it's only what he wants to answer and uh but yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna get like Dale Comstock type of numbers, man. Did, He's like legendary I, dude. I'm I just some hot. Here we go. Shut up, Tony. I guarantee you, the, the, the people would have questions for you. Would you want to do something like that if I can get if I can get a, a reasonable amount of questions? Absolutely, not a problem. Hell yeah, you the man, Tony. Thank you very much. Um, I'll link- that was what the twentieth, correct? We were talking about maybe tentatively. What I, I I can check my schedule. But yeah, it's whatever they read, whatever the original day was. Yeah. You're the man, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything you did. Thank you for everything you continue to do. And obviously, you know, let's never forget the, uh, especially the 343 firefighters who were killed that day. So, um, yeah, man. And and unfortunately, I got to kind of, you know, like what people, I don't know if they realize, uh, we're up we're, we're upwards of like 200 guys now that have passed away from 9-11 cancer. So we're fast approaching. They, they know that we're going to surpass the original 343 with the guys afterwards. Um, the nice thing is the fire department does make it a line of duty death. They are remembered on the memorial wall. And the other people that are really not recognized is a lot of the construction workers and a lot of those folks that work Steel down there, those, like I was telling you about those iron workers and all those guys that work side by side with us, they're experiencing, they experienced it a little bit um, earlier on, but they're experiencing the same thing, man. Um, giant chunks of guys are passing away um, from 9-11 related stuff. So, you know, we're 20 years out and that's sometimes when people, you know, don't understand you know why you can still be so pissed off about it like it's because we're still feeling the repercussions yeah people are still dying that day yeah. and um you know 
I like to give those iron workers and the construction workers and all those heavy equipment operators because those guys literally, like I rotated in and out and I was there for 10 months. Those guys were there five days a week, 10 months. That was your job. You were assigned to the trade center. When it's done, you're done. And that was that. So they spent inordinate amount of time down there, more than any firefighter did. And uh, so just a little shred of respect for those guys, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I had never heard when you mentioned that. I realized I was like, that's a part of the story I'd never heard before. So I'm glad we could give them some recognition. And uh, on a lighter note, let's uh, do you know when Powerhouse is opening again? <laughs> do we know? Do we know when the for no, everyone? Hopefully, soon, yeah. For everyone listening, like I said, a, I'm a Clydesdale. I run. I'm a horrible runner. I hate running. Oh, dude, you that's know, speed I walk. have to, you know, do my best. David Goggins, you must suffer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You must suffer. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like, you know, win the battle of the morning, and like, to, I'm not to like grow, those you crazy must guys. Suffer. Yeah. Starting the morning, Jocko. Yeah, man. I, I need to get in the gym. I, you know, all I do is I'm, I'm doing push. I do like a, a bazillion push-ups a day, and. You know, I mean, it's good, and I've learned some nice new things. <laughs> but, but yeah, man, hopefully, so I'm hoping, I'm yeah. hoping sometime in May. Yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah, for for everyone listening, it's the 13th of April, 2020, and we have we are still in coronavirus quarantine. Yeah, man, I'm with you. I'm going, dude. I've been speed walking her because I can't run either. I get my legs are terrible. I've never been able to run, so I, I'm speed walking like a. Well, I can't. Uh, I don't like it. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where I, you know, that whole. You know, they, they, they say that mental battle. Well, I could do a lot of shit. I, I, and like, you know, funny, like I, I worked in special operations. I did high angle rope rescue. I did all this crazy shit. I told you we climbed seven, yeah. eight fucking stories. I don't like heights, man. I never liked I'm heights, terrible. but I was always able to push through that, you know? And and if I had the right gear or like, or just the right mindset, I didn't give a shit. You know, I'd be fucking 90 stories in the air. Most of the time you'd be fucking dizzy, but like I, I could push through that. Uh, Tell me I got to go run like three or four miles for the day. And I'm like, like I got to really get myself fucking jacked up to go. My wife makes fun of me all the time because she's like a super runner. She loves to fucking run. And I'm like, I'm in such a Clydesdale. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm terrible. You, uh, I just, I got to do it. You know? And then I look at a guy like, you know, Goggins who's running ultra marathons and he ran a hundred miles in twenty four hours. Goggins isn't like, normal. Don't com- yeah. don't compare yourself to Goggins. He's not normal. He's, what, he's not one. Can. He's not one of he's, us. Remember there was that sliver and then there's him above he's, that sliver. Yeah, he's know? a he's a yeah he's a speck that's that's that was chipped off and is floating towards the heavens. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, hey, but, but I'm sure you know his. I mean, you say to yourself, "Oh my God!" Like. You're like, wow. So, yeah, I have to do a lot to motivate myself. I need to get back into the gym. I need to throw some weights around, you know, <laughs> just feel like a human again, and hopefully it comes soon. Hell, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, let's open this the fucking gym opens. Yeah, man, I've been doing push-ups like a crazy person in my driveway. I've been speed walking like a, like an old mom, and I love it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I'm, Those I'm are my all... goals. Like, all right, 50 push-ups in a minute, 50 yeah. push-ups in 50 seconds, yeah. 100 push-ups in three minutes, and like, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get bored with this yeah, now. Like, you know, starting to get a little and then, uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. then I'll, I'll do the Murph workout, but I don't have a good pull up bar and I suck at pull ups still. And, yeah. I can do everything else. Yeah. All right, Tony. Thank you very much for doing it. I will send you a link when it's up. Um, 
obviously there's an ad at the beginning, but shout out Anchor FM for being awesome and hosting this shit. And um, yeah, man, let's do another one. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll put it up and I'll if see if we can't get some questions and uh, we'll do another one. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for uh, letting me participate. Once again, yeah, it was yeah. fun. I'm glad I could help you Thank out you at, at, at the last minute. But hey, guess what? There was a whole lot of nothing going yeah, on. Was a, yeah. I couldn't even go out, go out and <laughs> dig holes, which I've been doing for days because it was like a torrential downpour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I fucking, I fucking appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony. And uh, I'll text you after this, all right? All right, Thomas. We'll see you soon, man. All right, brother. Be well. Peace.